Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Good to hear everybody singing loudly. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor and opening God's word with us together this morning. Special welcome to friends and family here for child dedications. It's a joy to see parents dedicate themselves to the effort of raising their children to follow after Jesus. It's an equal joy to hear, to hear our church stand and publicly affirm that we will support these parents and their children in the effort of following after Jesus. I particularly love the affirmation as we proclaim, we will not bruise one another's children's, children, their tender lives with harsh words, quick judgments, and unfair criticism. We're gonna be patient with each other and with one another's kids. All three of my children were dedicated to going Bible Church. Here's a picture. Yeah. This is back when we let teenagers dedicate their children. This is a picture of our youngest, Rachel. Sherry's holding Rachel. I'm holding up a massive tie. Yeah. Sherry and I have been recipients of the richness of community that blesses and encourages the faith of one another's kids. To this day, many in this congregation continue to make positive spiritual impact on my, our adult children's lives. And it's a privilege, a high privilege, to continue to be an impact on many of your children's lives, for Sherry and I. A multi-generational church is a supreme delight. I was uh, between services in the what we call the donut hour, that passing period, and uh, Rathman Hall, the gymnasium, just packed wall to wall with little people running around and eating chocolate. It's a beautiful, the chocolate's beautiful, but just the seeing the families and grandparents and kids, it's special. This morning's topic is appropriate for Child Dedication Sunday. The topic is discipline, but perhaps not the type of discipline that comes to mind when we think of raising kids. You know, spankings and timeout. Do people spank anymore? I don't know. Spankings and timeout and uh, grounding, right? Not that type of discipline, but rather the type of discipline as we endure hardship. Biblically, discipline is thought of as anything that molds us, that shapes us into the character of Christ, that, that has an impact on us such that we, our character is fashioned so that we look more and more like God. And people experience us more and more with righteousness and peace in our lives. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Hebrews chapter 12. Follow along as I read a portion of that passage. The original recipients of this letter were ancient Jewish people who had embraced Jesus as the long-awaited and promised Messiah. As a result of their faith in Jesus as Messiah, they had experienced intense persecution, being ostracized in the local Jewish community, probably placed out of the synagogue, unable to go to the temple, and then the Roman authorities would have come against them as well. There was loss of property, some being jailed, some being put to death for serving in what was considered a false religion at that time, because they wouldn't bow to Caesar and say he was Lord. The author's writing in an effort to remind these Jews who are trusting in Christ, remind them of the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus 
encouraging them not to shrink back in their faith. Don't give up as followers of Jesus. In today's passage, he even encourages them in hardships, the hardships they're facing, to embrace those as discipline from a loving Heavenly Father. So I'm going to read from Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 11. They'll be on the screen as well. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, that is interesting. You're writing to folks that uh, are having a hard time, and you, you point out, hey, you haven't, you haven't had it as so bad that you've shed blood. This verse 4 is a little bit like, well, suck it up, buttercup. Uh, but in the previous chapter, Hebrews 11, they actually, the author actually listed ways and people, people were sawn in two, beaten. And so he's, he's talking about ancient people of faith and encouraging these people to look back at them and, and their sufferings and to take encouragement. Verse 5, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? He's about to give a word of encouragement. He's going to quote from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Just as the parents this morning read from Proverbs 31 in their child dedication, the author here is about to quote from Proverbs to remind them of an encouraging word. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as fa uh, father addresses his son? It says, it quotes from Proverbs, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. End of quote. So interestingly, side, side note, he's doing here for the first century Hebrews to whom he's writing what I'm trying to do from the platform this morning. He's taking God's word and saying, hey, don't forget, this is relevant for your life. Apply this to your life. He's quoting from Hebrew, uh, Proverbs. I'm going to quote his word in Hebrew. The, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, as he quotes Proverbs. So he's doing what I'm trying to do. Encourage us according to God's word. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as children, for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate children, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits, our Creator, and live? They disciplined us, that's the earthly fathers, for a little while as though they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may, so that He may, share with us His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, it seems painful. Later on, however, it produces something, if we let it. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. When we go through something difficult, do we see it as an opportunity? Yes, we can see hardships as challenges for sure. We don't have to pretend that hardships aren't difficult. That's not what's being implied here. It's not what I intend to express. I'm not asking the question, how good are you at putting on a happy face? Too often the church is a place where we put on a happy face. There's no need to do that. He's not saying hardships don't exist. He's actually saying hardships exist and we can see them as opportunities. We can see them differently. 
So Scripture's not encouraging us to pretend hardships aren't there. Scripture's actually encouraging us to admit hardships are there and see them as disciplinary, as shaping us, as God allowing us to go through something that will positively impact us. Scripture teaches us that all hardships have silver linings for the people of God. If you're a note taker, here are some of the the positives that can come out of hardship for the people of God. Hardships are an opportunity to know God's love as his children, as his sons and daughters. We, We can let the hardships that we experience drive the knowledge of God's love for us deeper and deeper. It's an opportunity to experience God's goodness and share in his holiness. Have it shape our character. It's an opportunity for us to come out the other end with character that's more fully formed, righteousness, and a deeper sense of peace in our lives. All of us want more peace. All of us want to know God's love more. All of us want the abiding confidence that God is in this with us and that he's making good things come out of difficulties. Malcolm Muggridge, a British journalist and a late-in-life convert to Christianity, had an interesting perspective on hardship. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and after C.S. Lewis's death, many thought that Muggridge was kind of the heir apparent to the modern apologist effort that was going on in Britain at the time. His take on suffering most, more closely approximate, approximates the author of the book of Hebrews. It's very unique. It's very different than what uh, uh, postmoderns like ourselves in suburbia think of suffering. Muggridge enlisted in the British Army and was a part of World War II, a soldier uh, for Britain. He also, so he knew hardship, that's my point. He also suffered from mental illness, uh, for much of his life, and had some very personal uh, debilitating sin in his life that he was constantly having to deal with and address. Here's his take on suffering. He writes this in a book titled, Jesus Rediscovered. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. Now that's a unique perspective, right? Without suffering, the world would be the most ghastly, he's British, ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. Suffering humbles us appropriately, is his point. Man is bad enough now. He would be almost absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. There, this is true um, in my life. Um, there are some points at which during suffering, um, I, I responded in a positive way and was most close, uh, close to God and most dependent upon God. There are other times when I responded to suffering in a very poor, with a very poor posture and didn't let it have the good work of humbling me and, and making me increasingly dependent and then shaping me. According to Muggridge, our moral development is largely dependent on our embracing suffering. That's what Scripture means when it says hardship allows God to share with us His holiness. Hardship and and going through it in a way that during which we see a silver lining allows God 
to form us. Without trials in life, without hardships, we'd be morally stunted, not fully formed, never becoming fully mature, all that we could be as creatures created in the image of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in his New Testament letter the same. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work. Let the trial receive the trial, receive the hardship. Let it do its work. Let it grow you in patience. Go through it. Don't go around it. Go through it and allow God to use it that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's, God, that's what God wants to do in our lives. He, he wants that we would lack for nothing when it comes to our, our moral development, our character, that this harvest of peace and of righteousness and sharing in His holiness. This type of patience, of patience counting uh, the trials of life as joyous opportunities, count it all joy, Sounds crazed in our context, our suburban context, because our whole culture is geared towards pain avoidance, not pain embracing, right? And again, we don't have to go as Christians looking for pain or creating pain, but when it comes, let's see it as an opportunity to go on to maturity. In our modern suburban context, I take... Uh, I take some lessons just from television shows. We like to see all, all issues in a television show wrapped up in like 30 minutes' time, and then we feel good about ourselves, right? Even if we binge a Netflix series, we want all the issues in the Netflix series to be wrapped up by the end of the series with a little bow on it. Think about modern medicine and our posture towards modern medicine, expecting it to eradicate all pain and disease. A suburban longing is not for greater stamina, not for greater perseverance and patience, by and large. Our suburban longing is for quick, easy escape, convenient escape. We want release. While God wants us to count it all joy, let patience have its perfect work so that we become mature, complete, lacking nothing. What is your view towards hardship. Is it that God is good and he's working in those details to bless us? Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, beloved chapter, well-known chapter, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So take whatever you're currently enduring, your present sufferings, Draw them to mind and then imagine they are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. What you're current, currently going through pales in comparison to the vivid beauty that God has in store for you. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, all things. For those who've been called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things, God works for the good, even the difficult things, for our good. Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, passed away this year. 
A lot of people are reflecting on his legacy. It's a good time to do so, I think. He used to tell a story aimed at illustrating God's good work through every detail. It, not simply the hardships, but in the hardships, even the minutiae as he reflected on the founding of Redeemer Presbyterian and how God had used Redeemer and the people of Redeemer to plant churches and reach people with the gospel, thousands of people with the gospel in New York City, he would ruminate on some of the things that were going on behind the scenes that if God hadn't woven them together, that Redeemer would have never come to pass. And the people of Manhattan and beyond Manhattan, frankly, would not have had the witness of Redeemer. Now, they, God wouldn't leave himself without a witness. And it's not Redeemer alone that's doing a work in Manhattan, but God's done something powerful through that church and the people of that church. He tells the story of, in 1989, planting the church there in Manhattan. Arguably, no one would think that it would be an easy go in Manhattan. It would be hard soil to turn over a wealthy, highly competent, highly credentialed, very busy people in a city that's very diverse. A church today, though, that has multiple campuses. I remember their, their um, capital campaigns to try and provide housing for their worship services, needing gazillions of dollars because Manhattan real estate is not cheap. But today, Redeemer has multiple campuses. It has a church planting network that's helped plant churches all over the globe, reaching thousands with the gospel. He says, almost none of this would, come, would have come to pass except that God is at work in the most difficult situations, even the hardships and the minutiae of hardships, to navigate good things for his people in God's glory. Keller starts by telling the story when he was in seminary, he was really vexed at not knowing what he was to do, where, how he was to serve as a pastor, and having some deep theological questions in seminary that he was wrestling with and, and feeling at odds and unsure about how to proceed. Really, in some situations, he said, I, I was fairly lost, even in seminary, about direction and where to go. And he tells this part of his story as the founding of Redeemer with that vision in sight. He, he tells this story because in his last semester of seminary, a British professor came. And this Brit British professor uh, came and, and taught for only one semester. And during that semester had a really demonstrable impact on Keller's life, helping him settle some theological issues and hear from the Lord on where he should go and what he should do in pastoral ministry. Keller goes on to note, though, that that same professor almost was not able to come to America to teach. The professor was British, as I mentioned. He needed a work visa in order to come across the pond to teach, but the visa had not come through for whatever reason. In fact, the professor later explained to Keller he had given up. He forgot about it and thought, well, I guess I just won't go. The State Department of America not moving in a way, in a fashion, that he'd be able to come. And so he determined that he wouldn't go. Surprisingly, though, the State Department out of nowhere contacted him and provided him with a visa. That apparently came to pass because at Keller's seminary, there was another student at the seminary who was a part of Gerald Ford's extended family. Ford was the president at the time. 
And this seminarian mentioned to his extended family, and it gets to the White House, that this British professor, the State Department's bogged down, and he's apparently not going to get to come visit our seminary and teach, and we'd really like him to. And so the State Department perks up when the White House calls, and they move it along, and the British professor gets to come. Well, if you know anything about American history, you know that Gerald Ford was in office this, at this point, not because he was elected, but because Nixon had resigned under immense scandal leaving the White House, the Watergate scandal. The Watergate scandal had included wiretapping and fraud and breaking and entering and theft, all of which God had apparently used in a positive, not cause, but used to work good for his people. As Nixon uh, sunsets and Ford gets into the White House, then this seminarian has uh, the ability to express desires, and the State Department moves accordingly, changing the trajectory of the British professor's life as he gets to come and teach, the trajectory of Tim Keller's life. Now, is that all that God was doing during the Watergate scandal? No, not by any stretch. I would recommend to you Chuck Colson's biography titled Born Again. If you like American history and real spiritual um, change, Chuck Colson was in Richard Nixon's White House, the architect of the Watergate break-in. He went to jail. There he's born again and had a power. So is Tim Keller the only uh, beneficiary of, of God's work through a Watergate scandal? No, not by any stretch. But imagine a night watchman in the Watergate Hotel, bored, right? Not, it's not the most fun thing to do, right, to be a night watchman. And he's going around checking doors in the Watergate Hotel where he notices one door oddly is unlatched that's never unlatched. And he opens the door and catches them red-handed, Nixon's henchmen breaking in, stealing documents. Think about it. All of America discouraged by what was happening during the Watergate scandal, but God was at work. He was moving to redeem an ugly situation and bring a, a seminary professor to change the trajectory of Tim Keller's life, to birth a church in Manhattan that would bring the gospel witness to a hard area and save many, many people. Think about this British professor and how discouraged he was, thinking he'd not be able to teach like he wanted, where he wanted, giving up all hope. God was at work in these situations. God is at work in our lives. In the difficult situations and in the minutia of these difficult situations. The good news is that God is orchestrating something beautiful out of innumerable troubles all over the globe. If you're enduring hardship this morning, every detail of your trial the one you are facing is not out of the reach of God. And we have the promise that none of our suffering is ever wasted. None of it. God is at work to do something. That's better than okay news, folks. It's better than so-so news. This is truly good news. Everything works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes who see in Christ God's redemptive effort in the world. So hardships are an opportunity to know God's love as his sons and daughters. 
experience God's goodness, sharing his holiness, produce a harvest of righteousness and peace in our lives. If we'll allow it to train us. So instead of looking at hardship and wondering, does God love me? Does he, does he love me? Let's look at hardship as the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father, as an opportunity. Let's let it remind us that he's orchestrating good out of every difficulty. So many, when they face hardships, allow their hearts to grow discouraged and hard, rather than soft and filled with the knowledge of God's love. Remember, if we can say anything about suffering in the world, and this is like the third week in a row we've talked about suffering from the platform, if we could say anything at all about suffering in the world, we can say that God cares for us in our suffering. I'm not sure why suffering continues. I don't know why Christ hasn't yet returned to claim his church and, and bring us into eternity with him, but this I know about suffering for sure. It can't be the case that God doesn't care because he entered our suffering. He joined us in our suffering, lived a morally perfect life, and died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for my sin, for our sin. Folks, Buddha didn't do that. Allah didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Brahman didn't do that. Vishnu didn't do that, Hindu gods. Only one God has done that. Yahweh has entered time and space and suffered for us. This is really good news. What we've been unable to do for ourselves He's done for us by entering time and space. The name is Emmanuel. It's Isaiah chapter 9. It'll be the focus of our Advent series coming up. God with us. He came entering our suffering to overcome the suffering caused by sin. Raised from the grave, he brings us into life with him by faith in him. Not faith in ourselves. And if the gospel's washing over you and you're getting it for the first time, all other worldviews are, you must do it, while the Christian worldview is, he has done it for us. Man, that's good news. Really, really good news. If, you're, if faith is rising up in your heart, if you're saying, wow, that makes sense, and it's making sense for the first time, then let your mouth profess what your heart's believing, Romans 10, 9, and you'll be saved. Say, God, I believe you entered suffering to care for me. It's that simple. You can now, as a result, look at hardships differently. You can see every cloud of rain as having a silver lining potential. So what's our application? First application is expect hardships. Now, I know that that's not um, earth-shattering news. I, I think the obvious deserves to be stated. The resurrection of Jesus does not insulate us from hardships in this life. It will ultimately deliver us from hardship, but we aren't insulated from hardship. No, he joins our suffering. We are a people who see rain clouds and think silver linings are ahead. We don't pretend things are easy in life, but we live with full confidence God's doing something marvelous. We are people who see catastrophe and think you catastrophe. You ever heard this word? Tolkien made it up. Wouldn't it be fun to have enough literary chutzpah that you could make up words? 
A catastrophe, we know what that is. The, the Greek uh, prefix you is good. It's a good catastrophe. So a eulogy is a good word. Euphoria is a good feeling. A you catastrophe is this sudden happy turn in a hellish experience that brings joy. It even brings tears. We're so overwhelmed by it. It's a powerful concept for the people of God. Tolkien, a believer. So we see hardships differently, and we see God differently. We don't only see hardships differently, we see God differently. We no longer see him as someone out to punish us, to catch us in doing wrong. Folks, don't, don't let these words go unheard. So many of us enter a hard season and we think God is punishing us. Now, there are certainly natural consequences to sinful behavior. But so, so many of us enter a hard season and we think, oh, he's punishing me, he's caught me. We think he's out to get us. That's not the testimony of Scripture. The gospel is he has caught us in our sin, and when he caught us, he sent a sin sacrifice on our behalf. And the punishment we deserve, he poured out on Christ. And so while there's certainly consequences to living in a sinful world, I bear the consequences of my sin oftentimes when I do something stupid, I shoot myself in the foot, or my, the people close to me, there are community consequences to sinful behavior as well. Someone close to me acts sinful and, and I'll bear those. But it's not God coming against me. It's not God punishing me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to care for us. We actually, the, the truth of the gospel is we escape punishment because of what Christ did on the cross. And so we change our perspective on hardships. And we change our perspective on God. He's loving. He's actually allowing us to go through these hardships so that we can share in his holiness. His moral perfection, if we allow it to shape us, there'll be more righteousness in our lives and more peace in our lives. Let me be really blunt. Changing our perspective on God will make a large difference on how we endure hardships and whether or not we endure them well. Moving from thinking he wants to punish me and he's going to catch me, he's out to get me, to seeing him as loving and, and good and orchestrating the world in order to care for me and share my, his holiness with me. It'll change the way, if we think he's out to punish us, we, we often develop bitterness and rage and hopelessness and in depression, but if we think he's for us, as Scripture says, then we develop hope. And we endure hardships, allowing them to train us and shape our character. Lastly, so we see hardships differently, we see God differently, and we let it train us. No discipline. Last verse, verse 11 no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. Remember, we don't have to pretend as the people of God. We're honest when we're going through hard things. We share that with one another. We don't show up and pretend. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Being a part of the suburban culture, we, we train ourselves. We go to school. We go to uh, college, we go to grad school, we climb the corporate ladder, we discipline our minds, we discipline our bodies, we go to work out, there's health clubs, we understand training. Discipline and in small incremental growth brings change, right? So 
He's saying, let hardships train you. Don't resist them. Don't refuse them. Don't try to escape them, end around them. Go through them. See what God has to teach you from this hellish experience. Watch him carry you through it and provide you, provide for you in the midst of it. Psalm 23, he provides a table before us in the presence of our enemies, right? He meets us and surrounded in, by the valley of the shadow of death, the greatest enemy to humanity. Let it train us because we know he's good and at work in ways unseen to care for us. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Would you change the way we see hardship? Change the way we see you at work for us in hardship? And would we be a people that neither pretends that things aren't hard, nor tries to avoid hardships? But we let the hardships of these, this world train us in godliness. Help us to be learners. Let your spirit teach us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.